For over a decade, my wife and I had the privilege of working in the historic city of Philadelphia. You may not know this, Philly is something of a foodie paradise with ethnic options from every corner of the globe, world-class fine dining establishments, and shaded streets lined from sunrise to mid-afternoon with food carts that the locals lovingly refer to as roach coaches. Home to scores of museums, theaters, and concert halls, patrons of the arts never need travel far for an evening of culture. And when it comes to sports, who couldn't love the Philly fanatic? For me, Philadelphia's historic significance was her greatest allure. My father took a job at the corporate headquarters of a large chemical company in 1975 and moved us to that area from western New York just in time for the American Bicentennial. Even as a child, I sensed that this was a special place to be. This appreciation only matured as those vibrant colors of the bicentennial faded to muted hues. In my adulthood, I spent many a lunch hour exploring her streets and alleys. Despite countless childhood trips to Independence Hall, the Liberty Bell, and the Franklin Institute, there was always some new glimpse of history waiting to be uncovered just around the corner on a warm spring afternoon. Now, I've forgotten the details of most of my work days in those years, but those walks have stuck with me. It was on one such spring afternoon as I entered the courtyard of City Hall when a plaque caught my eye erected long ago by a group called the Colonial Dames of America. Let that give you an idea of its age. It bore the following inscription. William Penn's Prayer for Philadelphia, 1684. And thou, Philadelphia, the virgin settlement of this province, named before thou wert born, What love, what care, what service, and what travail there have been to bring thee forth and to preserve thee from such as would abuse and defile thee. Oh, that thou mayest be kept from the evil that would overwhelm thee, that faithful to the God of thy mercies in the life of righteousness, thou mayest be preserved to the end. My soul prays to God for thee that thou mayest stand in the day of trial that thy children may be blessed and thy people saved by his power. When Pastor Chris scheduled his vacation and asked me to preach today, my first thought was, oh, I hope it'll be Philadelphia. And as the Lord would have it, so it is that we come this week in our continuing study of the revelation of John to Christ's letter to the church after whom my erstwhile home is named. I vividly remember that day retrieving my notebook and my trademark fountain pen 
and copying down the text of that prayer in that little black Moleskine notebook. We did not all carry cameras around in our pockets those days. I did that for two reasons. Firstly, I was deeply moved by the heart behind those words. But also, the building was in the midst of an extensive restoration, providing ample opportunity for that plaque to be hidden away by those who might take offense to its outdated message. As far as I can tell, it did survive the restoration. What a blessing to Philadelphia to have that prayer surviving for those who would encounter it and take it to heart. What we have here in Revelation chapter 3 is certainly not a letter to a church in the United States of America in the 17th or the 21st century, except in the sense that all of Christ's letters to these seven churches in Asia Minor are preserved for the edification of the Catholic small c or universal church, you and me. There is no special hidden message here for a church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, any more than there is in a previous letter for a church in Smyrna, Georgia. So why even mention William Penn's prayer? Because I cannot help but sense that he had Revelation 3 in mind when he gave his city her name. Christ's letter to Philadelphia stands out among the seven in its absence of rebuke and in its payload of praises and promises. Penn hoped that his city would not only live up to its name, but to its namesake as well. It is a letter that any church would delight to receive. So if you're not there already, let us turn together in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. And would you please stand with me if you are able, in honor of God's word. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. This is the word of God for his people. For you and for me. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word And have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept 
my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to your word this morning with deep anticipation. Bless, Father, the reading of your word, we pray, and teach us. By your Spirit, Make us like Jesus, who shed his own blood for our souls. That we, like the church at Philadelphia, will be established in your kingdom for your glory. Because Christ has secured our access, we come with confidence, our sins forgiven, with eyes to see and ears to hear. Our hearts yearn for his return, and it is in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The New Testament city of Philadelphia is believed to be the youngest of the seven cities of Revelation. Founded in the second century before Christ, it boasted bountiful vineyards owing to the rich volcanic soil that betrayed the destructive forces below. While many of the cities in these chapters suffered a large earthquake in 17 AD, Philadelphia's position directly on the fault line meant ongoing aftershocks were a part of daily life. Many Philadelphians made their homes in huts or booths outside of the city proper for fear that they would be crushed. Life in Philadelphia was not for the faint of heart. I suppose you could say it was a place for movers and shakers. (laughs) Strategically located at the junction of major trade routes, Philadelphia's significance as a hub politically economically and culturally established it as the gateway to the East. Its name, meaning brotherly love, memorialized the loyalty of Attalus II to his brother, King Eumenes II of Pergamum. Ancient Philadelphia lies beneath what is today Alasahir Manisa in Turkey. Millennia of earthquakes have left few remains. One of the most significant ruins on the site is that of St. John's Basilica. Now, in the Roman Catholic Church, a basilica is what we would call a worship center, right? The church is the people. The basilica is where they meet. Aside from a few 
scattered stones, all that remains are three piers that once formed the base of its Byzantine archways. Constructed centuries later, about 600 AD, the only connection to the letter of Revelation is the name of St. John. The church in the first century to whom this letter is written may not have had a building at all. Remember, the early church was made up largely of Jews who recognized Yeshua as the Messiah. At first, they were considered a sect of Judaism. And in many cases, it was not until they were expelled from the synagogues that they took to meeting in homes. So the context for these early Christians in Philadelphia was one of constant uncertainty and even of exile from the community that had been at the very heart of their identity. And it is to these believers that Christ writes the words of the Holy One, the true one. Up to this point, Christ has identified himself in these letters using the words that John had used in chapter 1 to describe the Son of Man who spoke to him from the midst of the seven lampstands, right? Each image expressed the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this letter, Christ deviates from that pattern, identifying himself in distinctively Old Testament terms. Let's consider them. The Holy One speaks to Christ's otherness. That he is entirely set apart from creation as a whole and from evil in particular. Next, the true one derives from the first and makes the ultimate truth claim. Jesus is truth. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Also, note that he does not say, I am holy and true. If your Bible reads that way, I'm sorry, they whiffed it. In both cases, the, the attribute is preceded by the definite article, the, ho in Greek. And it describes a singular person. So both of these speak plainly to the deity of Christ. That is, he is one with God the Father. John 10, 28 to 29, Jesus is speaking. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Back to the text. The son of man continues, who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Turn to Isaiah 22. I want you to see this connection here. Who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. We're going to start with verse 20. Isaiah 22, starting with verse 20. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, And I will clothe him with your robe. 
And I will bind your sash on him, and I will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut. He shall shut, and none shall open. Now here in Isaiah 22... Isaiah is delivering a prophecy to Shebna that the Lord is about to wipe him out and put Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, in his place. As the one who is over the household, Shebna essentially holds the keys to the kingdom. Now, he decides who has access. Furthermore, he is in charge of the gates. He has authority, ultimate authority. So he controls not just who has access to the king, but also he controls the comings and goings at the gate. So in this passage, Judah has failed to recognize God's hand in providing for them. And Shebna in particular has exulted pridefully in his own strength. So the Lord sends Isaiah to deliver a sobering prophecy. He is going to throw him out like a ball and hurl him away violently. And all of the authority that he had will be transferred to Eliakim. Specifically, the key of David will be placed on his shoulder. A decisive transfer of power, of authority in David's kingdom from one steward to another. Now, Isaiah speaks of authority in an earthly kingdom. But given the vivid nature of this prophecy against Shebna, it certainly would have resonated among these first century Philadelphian Jews receiving this letter to them. Where else do we see that on the shoulder language in a similar context? Well, Isaiah, again, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Oh, you don't need to look at this. You know this by heart, probably. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it. With justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now this passage, of course, in Isaiah chapter 9, is a prophecy of the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now back to our text. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Again, Do you see the connection back to Isaiah 22? So as authority in David's earthly kingdom was transferred to Eliakim in Isaiah 22, we now find the key of David in possession of the Son of Man, the Messiah. And all of the authority associated with it is in his hands. In John 10, 9 to 11, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so the Lord is saying here that he is the holy one. He is the true one. He holds the key to David's kingdom. He opens, he closes, he and no one else. And whatever he does, none other can undo. And amidst all of the tumult and uncertainty of life, be they natural disasters or sickness or rejection and oppression by the very ones who were once their closest community. He is holy. He is true. He is sovereign. He is omnipotent. He is Lord. Verse 8. I know your works. As brother Ian noted last week, those words give us pause. By the way, in case you hadn't noticed, they also add another divine attribute to our list. Holy, true, sovereign, omnipotent, and now omniscient. The Son of Man knows your works. You ever been driving down the road, <laughs> minding your own business, perhaps listening to the radio, a podcast, or Pandora? When out of the corner of the eye... You glimpse something you hadn't noticed when you passed it. It might not have grabbed your attention until it started to move. And then the lights come on. Red and blue lights. Flashing in sequence. Kind of pretty, if only they weren't getting closer. You examine your instruments and think, I'm not speeding now, but was I speeding back there? And then they pass. And your pounding heart returns to your chest. After we prayed together just this last Wednesday evening, we men spent a few minutes talking about how the longer we walk with the Lord, the more we study his word and the more clearly we understand his holiness, the more sinful our sin feels. Others may look on us from the outside and objectively say, you're such an example for me. I hope I can be like you someday. But we know better. God's word cuts deep. It reveals our sin and our weakness. Oh, but thank God for the testimony of the Apostle Paul who agonized over his battle with the flesh lest we be driven to misery thinking that we were alone in it. And so the church in Philadelphia catches the cruiser in their rearview mirror. I know your works. And then in an instant he exclaims, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. So the one... The only one who has all authority and power to open and close the doors of the kingdom grants the church at Philadelphia an open door. Now, I can see two main possibilities as the meaning of this picture, this open door. Firstly, it may be a reference to the fact that they have been granted access to the kingdom of heaven. These believers who have been kicked out of the synagogue and have had the door slammed behind them, are guaranteed full access to God's everlasting kingdom. 
And I can't see any reason to exclude that, that possibility. But secondly, there is another explanation, possibly, and that is that it may be an open door to proclaim the gospel. Paul used the image of a door repeatedly in his writings. Now, I won't have you turn there, but I will read them. 1 Corinthians 16, 7-9, he says, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And again in Colossians 4, 2-3, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. And there are others. Given Philadelphia's strategic location, culturally, politically, economically, and for that matter, that fault line that kept Philadelphians unsettled, it is fair to say that these conditions provided a prime opportunity for gospel witness. And so I cannot exclude that possibility either. In fact, those two go hand in hand, don't they? He continues, I know that you have but little power. Now, I want you to resist the urge to see this as a criticism. It is not. Jesus, speaking to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. We know this passage. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Whether they're small numbers or the disadvantage of having been expelled from the synagogue or both are in view, this is definitely not a criticism. On the contrary, the next two words make it clear that it is the opening to accommodation. And yet, he says, and yet, even though they were acting from a position of weakness, Jesus commends them, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Time for another history lesson. Anyone under Roman rule was expected to acknowledge Caesar as their supreme authority. You understand that? Everyone except one group, the favored position of the Jews at this time granted them a little leeway. And so, having your name on the rolls of your local synagogue was important if you expected to withhold your worship and also your head. And yet, these believers were bold to confess Jesus as Lord, even from their position of weakness. Here it comes again. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. So wait, the Jews in Philadelphia were worshiping Satan? No, but they were under his deception, unable to see that Jesus was the Messiah. Despite their outward appearance, of adherence to Jewish laws and customs. Inwardly, they were dead in their unbelief. Turn with me one more time to Romans chapter 2. Romans 2, 28, 29 is where we're going to be. Romans 2, 
speaks to what it means to be a Jew. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul delves deeper into this elsewhere, such as in his epistle to the Galatians. The point, though, is that by denying the Lord Jesus Christ as God's Messiah and the fulfillment of the law, and by expelling those who did believe, they demonstrated that they were not heirs to God's kingdom, but were in fact under the deception of Satan. So, of these lost Jews, the Son of Man continues, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Oh, how the tables have turned against these false heirs to David's kingdom. Consider the former promise of Isaiah sixty fourteen, and how this would have come to mind. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. That was a promise to Old Testament saints, and the tables have turned. Now, we might be inclined to look at the Son of Man's words here, and see it as a judgment against the Jews, and certainly that's true. But I believe that even here we see hope that some of them will come to Christ on account of the faithful witness of the church. The prophecy of Zechariah 12.10 holds forth this hope, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Son of Man continues, verse 10, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. To keep his word about patient endurance means to patiently endure in accordance with his word. The church at Philadelphia has patiently endured hardship and persecution. And because of this, His promise, his reward, and ours too if we endure, is that he will keep them from the hour of trial. This is a significant promise. This is not a promise to protect them through trials in general, although he does. But to keep them from it. From what? from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Evidently, 
the Lord has a particular future event in mind, an event that will try all people, but that he will keep them from. This seems like a good place for another behold, doesn't it? But you can't have one unless you're reading from the King James or, oddly enough, the New Living Translation. The behold that comes next here is omitted from most manuscripts. But nonetheless, the real mic drop here is what follows. It's not the first time that we've seen a statement like this in the letters to the churches. But it is the first time that it is a joyous promise and not a threat. Are you ready? The Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, says in verse 11, I am coming soon. Now, folks, what you have right here is in its most concise form, the essential, non-negotiable core of eschatology, what we call the imminence of the return of Christ. Jesus is coming soon. Over the years, I've seen many inscriptions on the desks of pulpits. Things like, Sir, we would see Jesus. But without a doubt, my favorite I've ever seen is perhaps today. (laughs) Listen, if you believe those words down to your core, (laughs) that's going to change everything. Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. In Philippians 3, 12 to 14, another familiar passage, the Apostle Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Most dads will have the memory of holding their young children on their shoulders or of swinging them in some fashion, maybe under their legs or in a circle. I will never forget the feeling of my children's little hands holding on tight to me as I held on to them. What father has not said, now hold on, and hold on they will. We all know they don't have strength to keep from falling. But they're not going anywhere as long as their father has them in his grip. And so he exhorts you to hold fast to him who holds fast to you. Continuing in his letter to these Philadelphian saints who had been shut out of the synagogue by the Jews and who had had their names scratched out of the rolls for acknowledging Yeshua as Messiah, the Son of Man writes in verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him 
the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. It was customary in antiquity to honor important people by engraving their names on pillars, the most essential permanent elements of a structure. But here, Christ promises to reward those who persevere in him by making them into permanent, indispensable elements of the church he is building. Not of stone, but of us. And to carve his glorious name on us for his own honor and glory. What a promise. The Lord Jesus Christ, holy, true, sovereign, and almighty, knows and holds all who in their weakness keep his word and confess his name. Though the foundations of the earth be shaken, friends betray and enemies plot against them, obeying his call to patiently endure, they will find refuge in his faithfulness and rewards forevermore. Amen? Listen, the Son of Man shed his blood to bring the dead to life. Have you found refuge in his sacrifice? The door stands open. Hear his voice. Come forth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord Jesus, we have we found hope this morning and comfort in your word to this troubled church who stood firm in you who held fast to you as you held fast to them. You hold the key. You open the door and none shuts it. One day you will come to receive us. One day you will raise all men to judge the living and the dead. And on that day, we pray, Lord, that all who are gathered here today will stand rejoicing, will kneel rejoicing, casting our crowns at the feet of him who holds us fast. We love you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.